America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 22. secretary just goes, go, go in and introduce yourself. And I went, okay. So I walk in and there's Quincy Jones, there's Antonio Carlos Jobim, Jobim who basically was the sound of the bossa nova. Oh, sure. Um, you know, he, he was one of the co-writers of Girl from Ipanema and Desafinado and, oh God, so many others. And he was at the time doing an album for Albert. But George Benson was sitting there and on the couch, and and Paul Williams, hmm. the writer, and Paul was you know had, was making lots and lots of money for uh, Albert. They have a publishing company called Almo Irving, and Paul wrote a lot of those songs for the Carpenters. Sure. everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scopitoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feelin' Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swingin' 60s. So Dick, who's on today's show? Thanks, John. In the 60s, we used to call them promo guys, record promotion men that would take your record to radio stations and get them to play it. Jeff Traeger was a promo guy who got the stations to play a lot of records by artists like Steppenwolf, Ray Charles, Tom Jones, the Mamas and the Papas, the Isley Brothers, and Ike and Tina Turner. Jeff once said, I realized I was making a difference in people's lives when Tina Turner called me into her dressing room and thanked me for getting their record on the air. That success was almost immediately followed by Jeff pushing a song by an unknown group called the Moody Blues. The song was Nights in White Satin. We're talking with Jeff Traeger in just a few. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you Looking for retro and vintage merchandise? You'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, America's Oldies But Goodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at America's Oldies But Goodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's America's Oldies But Goodies.com. One of the first promotions that Jeff Traeger did involved the Bee Gees. When they came to San Francisco, Jeff asked them to sing Christmas carols at San Francisco's Children's Hospital. Barry Gibb said yes, and as Jeff tells the story, they had the kids, the nurses, all of them crying because it was so beautiful. Most of Jeff's record promotion business was in the Bay Area. He was able to break Joni Mitchell's first hit on the radio at KFRC, and it exploded all over the country. 
More recently, Jeff's been doing fundraisers. He did one for a middle school that needed band instruments, and he got Sly and the Family Stone to play for the kids. He and I have a lot in common since we were both involved in the music scene in San Fran back in the day. We're going to talk with him about that right now. Jeff Traeger, welcome to America's Oldies But Goodies. And I know you're a native San Franciscan. Can you talk about your upbringing in San Francisco? I had a, a, a great upbringing by my parents. I can't say enough about how they let me find my way in this world. I wasn't a good student, and even with that, I my father still just said, look, stay in school, and something's going to find you, or you'll find something. Just, you know, you, you work, I work like crazy, and, and uh, I had three jobs, just like my dad did at one time, and... Uh, you know, as long as I was working, going to school, he was happy I could live there and just kind of find it. I, I'd go to San Francisco State and I'd study. <clears throat> At night, I'd try to study, and my my mind would wander after about 15, 20 minutes to uh, go into the canteen where the jukebox was, and I'd throw uh, quarters in there and listen to, God, Eddie Harris, uh, God Bless a Child, and music like that it was i had special favorites uh, i was a, a brubeck fan in those days and oh, a yeah. fan and, sure uh, yeah i always found obscure i looked for obscure obscure 45s uh, okay there was a record called <laughs> sunny gets blue oh yeah by marion mcpartman and probably to me the one of the best versions of all time uh, of that song and you know how many people did that song and that's what I would do because before I go to school uh, I'd stop off at this little uh, little pastry donut place and I'd I'd listen to that song every day <laughs> before I go to school yeah so I, I I don't know there was something there that music uh, uh, appealed to me obscure things I was into a, a lot of songs like that I I had three records in those days uh, two records actually Les McCann does the shampoo at the Village Gate and Herbie Mann at the Village Gate and uh, when we when I'd listened to those records I'd uh, when we finished I just we just flipped them over and <laughs> listened to them again and then I bought my parents one of those phonographs you know the, the kind of you know the big one there was a it was a piece of furniture. Oh, yeah, sure. I remember that. Yeah. Well. Yeah, of course. So I, I joined the Columbia Music Club, and I, I ordered uh, Miles Davis kind of blue. I don't know what it was. And then, <laughs> and then I I bought him Bobby Darren live at the Copa, which was really one of the better live albums that I think ever was done. Bobby was a, you know, Bobby's great. Was yeah. A, was a, legendary uh, performer. Were you in high school at this point? No. Well, yes, I was. Yes, it was the last year I was a senior. Okay. And Bobby Darren, Live at the Cobra, I still listen to. I I got the CD now, and uh, I just put it in and listen to the great thing, Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home, and songs from The King and I, and, of course, Mac the Knife, and and he played the vibes. He was just a he was just a great entertainer who sadly passed, you know, early in his career. I interviewed Connie Francis a while back, and she was talking about how she and Bobby would rehearse every day for like seven or eight hours a day. And I, I'm trying to remember, he, he died like in his 40s or even younger than that, maybe. 30s. 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 I think he's 36, 37. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I tried to do, I had an idea of doing a movie on his life and got a hold of Mickey Rourke, and Mickey Rourke was into it, and uh, we, we came up with the money, but Sandra D stepped in. I forgot that Sandra D was married to Bobby. Oh, jeez, yes. <laughs> and she says, not a chance. Oh. Oh, <laughs> if Enemies if was going to do a movie on Bobby Darren, it's going to be me. Sure. So I thought Mickey Rourke would have been a, a young Mickey. So now you're in high school. How did you get into the record promotion business? What drew you there? I had this infinity for music, okay? Uh, my dad would play the Mills Brothers, and I just up the Lazy River. 
You know, I oh, listened to that stuff all day. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to work as a bellboy when I was going to City College in San Francisco. And at that time, George Marsconi and the Burden Boys, John and Phil, uh, they'd get their haircuts up there. And, and George loved music. And so I said, why don't I meet you at a club in San Francisco called the Both Ann? Dan Getz is playing there. He was a senator at the time. Uh, of the state of California. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went, he enjoyed that. So then uh, he called me up and said, I can Tina Turner's in town. I would love to see them. So I took him down there, and the club was so small that the, the band had to play in the first two rows because she couldn't fit Come. everybody on the stage. Mm-hmm. And, and George says, can you introduce me to Tina <laughs> after the show? And I says... I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) That guy next to him is Ike Turner, and that's her husband. Yeah. And he is one mean son of a gun. (laughs) And I said, I just, this is what I hear, and I just, you know, (laughs) George, (laughs) I just don't, you know, I just don't uh, recommend it. Yeah. So George said to me after this, the Ike and Tina Turner show and said, you know, Jeff, you, you know, you you love music. you got to find a way to get in the business. And I am just the way. I know a friend of mine who works for Herb Alpert, oh. and I'll be happy to make a phone call. Yeah. So he sets up an appointment for me, and I meet this guy, and the guy hires me on the spot. This is this is great. I, I go down to Los Angeles, and I walk into the office of the building where Albert's office was and his door was open and he was having a meeting with Jerry Jerry Moss's partner and some other musicians and writers and his secretary just goes go in and introduce yourself and I went okay so I walk in and there's Quincy Jones there's Antonio Carlos Dobrim, Joe Beam who's Gee basically was the sound of the bossa nova oh, sure um, you know he, he was one of the co-writers of girl from ipanema and desafinado and oh god so many others and he was at the time doing an album for albert but george benson was sitting there and on the couch and and paul williams hmm. the writer and paul was you know had, was making lots and lots of money for uh, albert they have a publishing company called Almo Irving, and Paul wrote a lot of those songs for the Carpenters. Sure. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Backrack uh, uh, worked for uh, did some songs for uh, Albert Moss's publishing company. Also, Carol King, um, she did an album for him too. So people don't realize how much money that publishing brings into a label. That's where the money is. Sure, and and a lot of people don't realize that. One of the things that we ran into years ago as Harvard Bazaar is people wanting to place songs on our albums uh, simply for the publishing money that they could get out of it. So, And a lot of times, record label would do that to ensure that if the album didn't sell a lot, at least they had some revenue coming from some other source for the for the publishing yeah. part of it. Well, well, Paul Williams wrote those those real corny, you know, kind of songs that a lot of people, you know, would play, especially, uh, uh, you know, at weddings. And the Carpenters were right down the middle of the highway when it came to music. Everybody... Mm-hmm. Yeah. could relate to it. So he made a lot of money. <laughs> then he went on to... <laughs> his career is one of the planet... in the planet of the apes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, I liked him because he was shorter than yeah. I was. Yeah, he was shorter than you. He might have been shorter than me, too. But uh, Rainbow Connection, you remember that tune? Oh yeah, he wrote that. Yeah, great, great. Uh, yeah, great song. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say that you, there's a lot of people that you've worked with, uh, but I'm curious as to some of the people that really left a memorable impression on you. Who comes to mind? Well, the get, getting back to, to Ike and Tina Turner, that was the I was in love with her, her raspy voice. Mm-hmm. I thought she was she was really something. I mean, she just was 
I mean, the energy that she and the iCats uh, put out was just unbelievable. And I just loved the way she sang the blues. She was one of my favorites. She was absolutely, I broke their first hit record, which was I've Been Loving You Too Long, in 19, I think, 67, 68, mm. which was a hit previous by Otis Redding. And they had never had a crossover hit. Now, you got to have more than just your R&B stations playing your songs because most that's 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 the only place that they got played you know some when underground radio uh, happened then all, all of a sudden they got more accessibility but you can't really have a mass appeal hit unless you get played on a station like KFRC because they had the biggest signal and what I did with that record I went over to KDIA and I, I talked to the program director and said, look, I want to break this record. It's, 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 this, will prob this will be their first hit record and crossover. And I said, I need you to help me. So he says, I, I says absolutely. Uh, he says, I'll, I'll put, put it in top ten rotation, well, six, seven weeks, and let's see what we got. So I got the label, which was Blue Thumb Records, to send me a bunch of 45s. And at night, I get in my car and I drive to Richmond and I go to this, this little mama papa uh, R&B stores, Richmond, Oakland, and some in San Francisco. I'd run in and drop off a box record and say, I need you to report it. And they'd be, they just look, guys look at me and they say, okay, man, it's free records. I can make, <laughs> I'm gonna make money off, you yeah. know? Right. So that so KFRC KFRC had told me they didn't want to play it because it was too black. Huh? I said, "What do you mean too black?" I said, "Well, it's a little raunchy." And I says, I, "I know what you mean." I says, "But don't tell me it's too black." I says, "Last week I was in there with an Isley Brothers record, huh. now Glean, you know." So once KFRC played it, Mick Jagger had heard the song, put him on the Rolling Stones tour with BB King and another guy named Terry Reed, and because Mick absolutely loved Tina, and Tina opened, they opened up for Ike and, uh, for, for the Rolling Stones, and, and I could see nights when I, I, probably the Rolling Stones were a little more, a uh, little uh, worried that, they because they were great. Oh, they, in imagine. those days, they were smoking. Major energy on stage, major oh, energy. nobody... Yeah. See, and radio stations were saying, who are these guys? I can Tina Turner. I never heard of them. Well, dummy, if you listen to all your records, you'd, you'd, you'd realize that what great music there was out there. So they also, from that record, they got a million-dollar deal from United Artists, and then, of course, they went out and did uh, Proud Mary and uh, oh, yeah. I'll Take You Higher and yeah. Come Together, and their whole world changed. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Let me punch up a tune, and we'll be right back. I want you to tell me why you walked out on me. I'm so lonesome every day. I want you to know that you walked out on me Nothing seems to be the same way Think about the love that burns within my heart for you The good times we had before Later on in today's show, I'm going to tell you my story about type 2 diabetes. But first, I want to tell you about Longevity. It's a program that I've joined that was started by Dr. Joel Wallach, who's a crusader on a 40-year mission to educate people that proper nutrition and supplementation and not toxic prescription drugs is the solution for optimal health and longevity. And I've set up a website to tell you all about it. 
reduceyournumbers.com. That's right, reduceyournumbers.com. I put my story on that site to let you know what I'm doing to improve my health. Both my wife Mimi and I use Longevity supplements every day, and as a result, now I'm a crusader for Doc Wallach and the best health program I've ever encountered. Please check it out at reduceyournumbers.com. The Joni Mitchell thing. How did you, how did you know that that was going to happen? What started that? Well, the, the record came out. I didn't exactly hear it as a as a hit single the first couple of times. It just took me uh, it, it took me a little while to get into it because it's a different kind of a single. But what I noticed was that the single was selling in ten or twelve major markets. That means that. People are buying the single, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. She, you know, uh, KFRC said, well, she was a, she's a folk artist. And I says, yeah, I know. She sells a lot of albums. But she's never really had a hit. But I said, I brought in the, the sales sheets with all the single sales and album sales. And I said, look, here's the album selling a top ten here, top five here. And these were all big markets. And then I said... Now, take a look at the single sales. And I says, it's a top 10 selling single. That means that people are sticking their hands in their pocket and put, they're pulling out 99 cents and they're buying a song. Yeah. See? And the program director goes, Jesus, I never thought of that before. I says, well, here it is in black and white. And how can you not understand? Help me. I'm falling in love. Well, I was Dave Sholin and he, he laughed at me. At first, he said to me, well, it doesn't have a bullet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. David, right. that, that you know that people can buy bullets all day yeah. long in this business. You know, our listeners, just while you're saying that, just to bring them up to speed, that some listeners don't know what you're talking about when you say a bullet. And typically, I think probably both Cashbox and Billboard, but I think Billboard mainly, when they would put a red dot on their top 100 list or top 50 list, that dot indicated that that record was moving up more quickly than anything else. So if yes, you were number positive. if you were like number number 14 with a bullet, it meant you were sailing toward the top on that one. Right. And once you got into the top 10, uh, then the rotations basically dictated uh, that that record was going to be successful because yeah. of the number of plays that a top 10 record got. See? Yeah. And it was different. If it was a record, it was in the 20s, in the 30s, it didn't get played as much. So it's a matter of, of familiarity. They, and that those records, it, it basically brought them home, brought them down the, the home stretch to become a mass appeal record because people heard them over and over. And see, the thing about Help Me, it had a really, really catchy melody. Yeah. Okay, and it, it, that was it. And see, melody is everything. Mm-hmm. Everything you got to have a melody to have a hit song. You know, you can have some cute lyrics, but you you know you don't have a hit record unless it's got a great melody. So you know that's why certain uh, instrumental records were huge. Sure, because people just they start humming it. You know, oh yeah. We're talking about Herb Albert, and you know all of his stuff was instrumental. Was so was Dave Sholin uh, program director at that point over at KFRC? Uh, David was uh, was a, he was the music director. Music at KFRC. director. Okay, got it. Yeah. At different times, when I broke Johnny Mitchell, David was the program director, and he's the guy that I had to go. Uh, maybe he was a music director. I had to go to him. And I walk in with a stack of records, and you better know what you're talking about when you deal with a guy like Sholin, because you know he's heard every line at every promotion guy <laughs> ever, yeah. ever laid on him. Yeah. And the thing was that I didn't want to yell wolf because, first of all, they're not all hits. Yeah. All these records that people, you know, the, the promotion guys have to work certain records because they're given priorities. Okay. So they, a lot of them would walk in and they'd say, that's a hit, that's a hit. And I'm going, no, that's not a hit. You know, just, there's, <laughs> you don't even have it on the radio and you're telling guys like Sholin who knows that they're hit records. 
hit record is a, is a, is a hit record. It's because uh, major stations across the country are playing it, and it's selling, and uh, it's in it's in that top ten rotation. Can't remember if I told you I, I had interviewed uh, Dave. I don't know two three weeks ago, uh, and we talked about, of course, the John Lennon, the last John Lennon interview, which is the big deal with Dave. But he worked for uh, Bill Gavin and did the Bill Gavin yeah. report. And one of the questions I had for him was. Was he constantly being courted by the various labels? He kind of downplayed it. I assume that he was being majorly courted by all the record labels, probably all the time. No, I'll tell you something about Dave Sullen. Dave Sullen was an was one of the most honorable guys that you'd ever want to meet in the music. And he had a very powerful position in the music business, okay? Yeah. So... If you could get a record on one of his stations, the RKO stations, for example, or KFRC, it was hard to do because there was hundreds of records coming out every week, okay? David would listen to you, and David would discuss the records. And then if, if, you, if you knew that you didn't have a chance in hell because when David just went, okay, okay, and he'd be, he'd be a little short, he'd be a little curt mm-hmm. in our conversation, and I knew that he wasn't going for my reasoning, because I had my own reasons why a record should get on radio, okay? And, it, and David, David was tough. David was really tough, and yeah. he was such a nice guy that people kind of felt like, oh, yeah, I can be really good friends with David, and, you know, and he'll, he'll do me a favor. Well, I don't think that happened too often. Yeah. You know, David worked... David had a lot of integrity, a lot of integrity, and I, I, I kind of like working with him that way. I mean, I even went to high school with the guy, but I never got to the point where I said, come on, David, you know, you know me and I know. No, listen, if I went in there and I thought I had a hit, I thought I had a, a, a hit that would work in the marketplace in the Bay Area, that's where I was dealing with, that's where I was working Okay, what happens in Milwaukee is somebody else's business, but in San Francisco, I bet I had a good case why he should play it because, you know, it's all about ratings. KFRC was powerful, and they they had to keep their ratings up. So David was great. David was as as, as fine a a guy to deal with because because of his honesty. He didn't play play everything I brought him because... First of all, they're not all hits anyway. Right. You know? Yeah. And sometimes he wouldn't play my number one record, Frank Mills' Music Box Dancer. Sure. Because it doesn't fit the format of the station. And I went, okay, I'll accept that. And and I got a little heat from the record company saying, you know, uh, why isn't it on KFRC? doesn't fit the format. Yeah. According to... Dave Schoen, and, you know, Schoen carried a whole lot of weight. Oh, yeah. And there was nothing anybody could do to get him to add that record. Yeah. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. nothing. It was, it was the number one record, and it, it sold uh, millions of records, but it never got played on KFRC. Yeah. That kind of reminds me a little bit of challenging experiences which I have to assume you had more than a few, particularly when you're pitching records to people like Dave Jolin, for example. What are some of the most challenging ones you ran into? That was an interesting uh, music box dancer. That's interesting because that was a major record. There was the Icantina and the Joni Mitchell were the hardest ones because David and other stations, and he because he was the, the hammer in the market, that was the hardest because it was trying to get through this well she's a folk artist thing okay and uh, that was a real challenge a lot of crossover R&B records were tough too because the competition KFRC actually started playing a whole lot of R&B records and because you see the Bay Area is a very diverse market I used to break records in Sacramento they had a station called FM 102 up there, and they wouldn't play my uh, Bon Jovi's or my John Cougar Mellencamp's 
when they were smashes all over the country, they wanted to play my Gap Band. That's what they were into because Tower Records had a store on Florin Road in Sacramento that sold hundreds and thousands of singles, R&B singles. So they knew the market. Uh, the other area that uh, a lot of people didn't think about was the Fort Ord, where there were a lot of servicemen, black servicemen, and I would go down there and I would really try to get the stations in Salinas to play it because I in San Jose if mm-hmm. I could, yeah, because I'd get a lot of sales that way. You could break records because the Bay Area was so diverse. It was we had the KYA which jumped on a few records early to R&B, and uh, between them, and then you had your KMPX, which became KSAN, and you could break a record nationally because you could get the record on a lot of different kinds of radio stations. You know, you mentioned KSAN. Uh, you, you remember Big Daddy Tom Donahue? Very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So do I, but go ahead. Tell me, tell me how the interface was with with him. Well, I tell you, the, the funny part was that the first day I met him, I took an album down to Casean. I'd never met him before, and I I walked in, I walked by his office, and this booming voice goes, "You looking for the jockey's locker room?" <laughs> <laughs> and I I thought that was pretty funny because. I was small. I was. Yeah. I just yeah. huh. anyway. Uh, so and Tom loved playing the ponies. So he he says, uh, "You ever ride a horse?" Huh. <laughs> I says, "No, but I got I got a few records here for you." So Tom and I actually became uh, fairly fairly good friends, and he he, he really trusted me. I I um, uh, spent a lot of time over at uh, of his place uh, over in Mill Valley. And uh, the most fascinating people in the world would be hanging out there, people like Tommy Smothers and David Steinberg, the comedian, too, and Bobby Dale, the great great disc jockey, and Bill Graham. And they'd call me up, so I'd come over and tout them on the NFL for the weekends. But Tom took a liking to me. He got me in a lot of trouble once, though, when I, I the London Records, was one of the first labels that I worked for as a, at this distributor, and uh, they 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 sent me a box of the new Rolling Stones album called Beggar's Banquet. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I got it, I went, I, I grabbed it, and I ran down to, uh, I listened, I listened to the first track called Sympathy for the Devil. As soon as I heard that, I says, My God, wow, this is great! And I said, I can't wait to get it down to to Tom. Well, it was the only box of records that, that the plant shipped. They, they shipped it by mistake. Huh? So Tom goes, well, what track do you like? He said, you just start at one and just play the whole thing, but start at one because that's the track. And London Records found out about it, and they called up Tom and said, you know, we're going to do a cease and desist order here, and uh, you got to stop playing it. And Tom, Tom just kept on playing it. <laughs> so he he got me in a little bit of heat because of that. Why would the London want them to stop playing it? Well, because you got to realize that when you have one station in the country playing it, that you're going to get so much heat from every other station that could play a Rolling Stone record, which means all the top forty stations. Yeah. Okay. In other words, KFRC. Was when they heard about it, they flipped out. When KYA or Sacramento, uh, the Croy KROY in Sacramento, they were calling me like crazy. And then, of course, New York, they got all the phone calls, you know, because that's where London was based. And nobody could get the Rolling Stones record because the one that they heard that KSAN was playing. And Tom was a was a real sharpie. He knew. By being the only station in the country to play this record, that uh, you know, there's a feather in his you know cap. Sure. Was uh, yeah. Yeah. Just happened by you now, and the record was supposed to be shipped to everybody, but it wasn't. It just got shipped to me by mistake. Yeah. 
Amazing. And I didn't bother to check to see if it was sent everywhere else. You know, I figured it, the, there'd be 45 and it was sent to KFRC or the album was sent to KFRC. I just just saw this box of record and says Rolling Stones and I went, okay, well, here's something that got to be played immediately. Did I tell you I interviewed his wife, Rachel Donahue? Yeah, you told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting interview. Neither one of us realized this, but when prior to Harper's Bazaar being named Harper's Bazaar, we were called the Tiki's, and we had auditioned for Tom Donahue and Bobby Mitchell, who owned a label called Autumn Records in San Francisco. And we auditioned for them a number of times, and they turned us down every time. But on one of the auditions, we auditioned at a club that they owned on Broadway called Mothers. Mothers. Yeah. Mothers. Do you remember Mothers? Yeah. They had a sax player named Mr. Clean that played there, and so did Sly. Yeah, Sly played there, too, and Sly uh, produced a couple of uh, songs for us once Autumn Records actually did sign us. Sly produced a couple of tunes for Donahue, but who was at the audition, and I didn't realize it at the time, was his wife Rachel was there. She remembers the Tiki's coming in to audition, and of course, as I mentioned, we got turned down. Ultimately, after five or six times, we badgered them so much that they finally signed us. But uh, in the early days, they, they weren't interested. I think it's time to give our guests a breather here. I'll cue up the turntable and be back in a smidge. Sitting in a railway station with my suitcase in my hand Going back where I came from, I've had more than I can stand Of watching them destroy my dreams They picked my brain till it was clean When I was up, they knocked me down I ain't gonna hang around, I'm going home I'm going home Earlier in the show, I mentioned that I would tell you more about the latest health program that I'm on. I've had the good fortune to lead a relatively healthy life, although I'm not sure I can chalk it up to plenty of exercise and a wholesome diet. I've never lasted longer than three months in any health club, and most of my days are spent in front of a computer. I've been a little bit surprised by the number of guests that I interview on this show who have type 2 diabetes. Most of us are in the baby boomer age range. I'm 72. And for me, age 50 was when I found out that I had type 2 diabetes. I've used various prescriptions over the years. Right now I'm using Jardiance, and I think it's helped reduce my numbers a bit down into the 130 range. Typical numbers for non-diabetics are between 90 and 110. As for my weight, I'd like to drop about 15 pounds. Two years ago, in an effort to lower my diabetes numbers, I cut back on sugary processed food foods and my blood sugar numbers came down, though not as much as I had hoped. However, as a pleasant side effect of nixing the sugar, in just two months I lost 18 pounds. But not for long, the weight came back again. Recently I started using some longevity supplements and my diabetes numbers have come down even more. My morning numbers now are between 85 and 114. Now, as an independent longevity distributor, I can't make any specific claims regarding that and since I'm still on prescription meds, I can't say for sure why my numbers have dropped, but I can suggest that you take a closer look at the supplement packs I'm using like the Healthy Body blood sugar pack. My wife Mimi is using the Healthy Body Weight Loss Pack, and we reorder both once a month. You can find these two supplements on my website, reduceyournumbers.com. That's reduceyournumbers.com. Well, you see, uh, the thing was that I was working one of my jobs at night. I'd work as a bellboy, excuse me, as a a bartender at the uh, Galaxy across from Enrico's. Oh, yeah. So I, I was well aware of mothers, but you know this. I'm sure you're well aware of it. That but Sly was their house producer and produced two 
two songs, one big hit for Bobby Freeman. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe The Swim. Um, I'm not... And, and also, uh, Do You Want to Dance? And then he did the uh, Bo Brummels. Oh, sure. Laugh, laugh. laugh. Yeah. And that course. was... I mean, Sly was, was an absolute true genius. He, along... This is my own personal feelings, but, you know, when you talk about true music geniuses, the guys who play and produce and write um, and arrange, you know, there's not a lot of them on that mountain, okay, on that mountaintop. Uh, you have a Donny Hathaway, okay, oh, sure. who, who, who did everything, uh, died very young, and, but, you know, he did a lot of stuff with Roberta Flack, and he was one of those guys, what I consider a true genius. Ray Charles uh, was right up there, was was right there on that mountain, Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield. You know, when it came to guys that, that did everything, I might have missed a few people, but to me, that's the guys on the top of the mountain. Yeah. The guys who could do everything. I was one of those guys. He just had his demons, that's all. Yeah, I can remember the, on a couple of occasions when um, he was producing sessions for us, he would bring in, he had two huge Great Danes, and he would bring them into the studio. And uh, I still have this visual picture of being out in the actual studio, standing behind a microphone, looking through the glass at Sly, and these two gigantic Great Danes sitting there, wondering if if I came in, if I was going to get my leg chomped off by these things. But anyway, the stuff that he produced for us, actually, I can't even remember what the songs were, but uh, there was a num number of people there at, at Autumn that got involved in production, but Sly was totally involved. So, Well, I, I think the one thing about Sly, one of the great things about Sly was that he had one of the first integrated bands mm -hmm. that that was successful. Now, you had, you could go back to Booker T, where you had Duck Dunn and uh, Steve Cropper, and I'm not sure, I'm trying to think, the bass, uh, the drummer. But outside of that, I didn't know of a lot. I mean, sure there were, but not to the success where here's a guy who had his, uh, he had two women in the band. He had a Hispanic um uh, Jerry Martini on sax. He had Greg Rico, the Italian kid from Davis City, um, uh, who was man, one of the, still one of the finest, funkiest drummers ever. And he had um, Larry Graham, of course, on bass. But Sly, Sly put together this group. He wanted it that. He, he, he wanted the best musicians, and he gave everybody a chance to, you know, to, to sing and and have solos and uh you know but he was one of the top first successful integrated bands and i don't think people think about things like that but you know it was groundbreaking sure uh, was at the time yeah. it was very similar to what santana did around the same time uh, maybe a couple years later because they had you know, you had a Mexican uh, guitar player in Carlos, and you had a Nicaraguan in Chapito Arreyes. You had Michael Carabello, who was a Puerto Rican. Uh, you had David Brown from the projects in San Francisco, who brought the um, James Brown licks to the mm -hmm. band. And mm -hmm. then you had uh, Michael Shreves, and you had Greg Raleigh, both kid, two white kids from the uh, peninsula. And then later on, they brought in... Uh, Neil Sean, who eventually went on to Journey, mm -hmm. but that's what made that sound. I mean, it was a it was a sound that might have been played in the East Coast in some form or another, but not to that level. You didn't have African beats, you didn't have a, a Latin beats, you didn't have jazz, and a lot of the guys in that band were, they were jazz freaks, okay? Yeah. And you add that to pop records and once that they you know because they were a jam band in the beginning you know that's why not everybody wanted to sign them you know they got turned down by Atlantic Records my label uh, Dunhill turned them down even though Carlos never would have he never would have signed with him he said because of Miles Miles Davis was on uh, and that was his favorite Miles was on CBS uh -huh. but 
you see, you had a band like that that appealed to, you know, everybody. That's why they were so big. They they had a sound. And they used to open up and their performance was with In a Silent Way, which was a Miles Davis song. And then they go into this incredible rhythmic, you know, sexually charged performance. The women loved them, you know, and the guys dug them. And, you know, they were just different. I just, I thought it was kind of ironic, but maybe apropos that those two groups, being as integrated as they were, came out of the Bay Area, which is quite a, you know, it's it's a melting pot. Oh, I was going to say the same thing, melting pot. You know, we've got, so I think we probably have like three shows here because we've just barely touched on all the stuff that you've been doing. Let's bring it up to today just briefly. I want to talk about what's going on in Fairfield and and uh, the shows that you've got coming up. And is that your general plan now to be promoting shows like you are? Is that essentially what you spend most of your days doing? Yeah, I, I did a lot of fundraisers uh, when I moved up here. I'm doing one for the last 10 years. We've done one called The Voices of Latin Rock for Autism Awareness. Mm-hmm. And we've had everybody from Sly and George Clinton showed up, and we had Booker T, and we had Lenny Williams, and we had the original Santana band. And that's what I've been doing, a lot of fundraisers, and uh, one for breast cancer awareness for about five years now. And that's what I'm really into. And then I do shows monthly at the downtown theater in fairfield which is absolutely gorgeous yeah i've got to check that out i i have never seen it is it a new theater or a rebuilt theater or? no no it, it was built 20 years ago and uh, they they put on productions and for one reason or another they stopped doing a lot of stuff it's uh, sits right in the middle of downtown fairfield which is mile off of 80 great mm-hmm. location yeah parking's free <laughs> which is mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. and people up here uh you know because i've been doing diverse shows i do country music i do i did a tribute to sergio mendez in brazil 66 and that was well attended and i do a lot of oldies soul shows because the marketplace it, it fits perfectly and i do i'm bringing in confunction Later in the year, I'm doing comedy. I'm bringing Will Durst uh, next month. So it's, it's a beautiful place, and once people see it, they're uh, knocked out, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like, I call it Jeff Traeger Presents. That's my company because uh, I wanted to kind of emulate, in a way, the guy that, that I felt was the best. Or what he did was, uh, entrepreneur was Bill Graham. Yeah. What I want to do is I want people to come out saying, geez, that was a great show, because that's what happened when you left the Bill Graham show. I had, I never, you know, everybody always, almost always had a good time, and they felt they got their money's worth. That's a lot of what I want to do. I want to bring great music to a, a market where a lot of bands don't normally play. And that's actually, what, from San Francisco, what are we talking? That can't be half an hour from San Fran? Depends what time you leave San Francisco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it depends on what time you get on the freeway. But uh, No, it's it's 45 minutes. Okay, all right. The yeah. Fairfield. But like I say, once you go to, you know, the people that go to the shows up there, they don't have to drive all the way home from San Francisco or Oakland. I mean... They can see really good music up in Fairfield and be home in 10 minutes. It's a great opportunity for me. Uh, I'm working on trying to get Herb Albert up there to play. I have Lenny Williams, uh, who played from Tower of Power. And I've had uh, a bunch of sold-out shows. I, I read the marketplace pretty well, and uh, I kind of know what, it, what, what people want to hear. Well, I think we ought to plan on... Uh, and uh, maybe the next time we connect, we'll divide this up more into 
because you've worked with so many artists. I, these stories can go on for a long time, and I think they're absolutely captivating. Plus, I want to know next time we talk, I want to know how the guy that you've got doing the the uh, James Garner's tribute to Johnny Cash, that's just a knockout of a show, and I want to find out about that. But let's let's just say that we shall regroup again at some point not too far down the road and just talk some more about all your recollections. Yeah, sure. It's funny. There's very few artists. That, it's, it's, it's really strange. Very few artists that I haven't. I did not work with Presley, though. I had a conversation in the middle of the night with him uh, through a friend of mine and didn't work with Sinatra. There's a lot of people I did. Otis Redding, who I would have loved to. Oh, but sure. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy that, and blessed that I've been able to do something I, I really enjoy because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they work 30, 40 years and they don't really enjoy what they're doing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like between, just the, the, the whole rhyme and reason of all the different types of people that you've worked with, that would keep, would keep me going. 24 hours a day but so I want to get into it some more so let's plan on it down the road and uh, at this point we'll we will briefly call it a day but I will get back to you soon well be my pleasure and uh, you let me know if you want to come up and see the James Garner I'll, I'll oh, be happy to uh, I will definitely let you know my wife Mimi is was totally bowled over by it when we saw him down here in the Santa Cruz area uh, yeah and what are we talking? That's in October. So I'll be back to you before then anyway. So Okay. All, All right. right. Good. Well, thank you, Jeff. Good reminiscing today. And we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Some of you probably already know that the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio, and I've got my own app, which you can get through the iTunes App Store. Just do a search for America's Oldies But Goodies. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archives of all of our shows, but to check out the groovy merchandise available there. In addition to Oldies merchandise, you have to check out the Vegas tickets, for both Celine Dion and Cher, and all the Amazon collectibles, which feature a Tommy Chong signed hand-drawn self-portrait and a statue of Robin the Boy Wonder from Batman. I just added a fun display of surf movie posters from the 60s, like Barefoot Adventure and Slippery When Wet. You'll find a whole bunch of goodies at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. For all of you health-conscious baby boomers, go to oldieshealth.com to get healthy body packs for weight loss, digestion, and lowering your blood sugar. There's an excellent assortment of healthy supplements at oldieshealth.com. I'm a cappuccino buff, so I also get their fair trade organic coffee, which is really tasty stuff. And one last note, you can also email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like me to have on the show. I love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The swinging 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>